You're listening to The Setup Podcast, a podcast that helps you navigate new topics in music, tech, and entrepreneurship with the most disruptive professionals in the music industry, turning their experiences working behind the scenes into actionable advice you could use. I'm Sydney, your host and marketing professional with a passion for music and connection. If you're like me, passionate about paving your own path, Hit the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, your favorite app because we'll help set you up for success at the Setup Podcast. In this episode of the Setup, I am joined by Joe Lucchese. Joe is the relationship architect, a tour manager turned entrepreneur, founder of an award-winning agency. And if you don't know Joe, you will after this episode. Hey, Joe. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing really good. Thank you. The first topic that I've seen trending in the world of music, and I want to get your perspective on it. What are your thoughts on drive-in festivals like these? I think they're great. And I think that they're a naturally safe way to uh, engage audiences and entertain audiences and come together for like a festival community or just as a community through music. It's easy to scale because you need a field or a large parking lot. Then you get a large format LED screen or projection surface, and you're, you're good to go for the movie side. For the stage side, it's very similar to what you would do uh, with you know concerts in the park, but just a, a couple little tweaks. So it's, it's a very easy idea that could uh, scale. There's other opportunities in that too for brands. And now speaking of brands, um, you know, you are the founder of your company, Project, and Project is a couple of things, um, but it didn't always start like this. So winding it back to 2012, it started off as a software to connect people at your own networking events. I'll let you tell us a little bit more. Yeah. So uh, uh, Micah Taylor is the uh, co-founder of Project, um, along with myself, but uh, but essentially I toured um, from 2005 to 2012 pretty extensively. I amassed this really interesting network of people and they came from all different walks of life and industries. Some were photographers in Europe, some were sound uh, engineers in you know, South America, some were pro- producers, some were tour managers, some were actually the artists themselves, promoters. And what I really found to be uh, something that I like to do was just make referrals and connect people. So eventually, as I was working um, with agencies and, and brands, I realized that there was a, a gap that needed to be filled. How could people that are actually seasoned veterans in their, in their industries make meaningful connections because of time, family, you know, resources? It's very hard. It's very hard if you're a CEO or a VP to like find you know, an hour, let alone four hours on a Thursday night you know, to do that. So what would be compelling for them? And then what would be compelling for a brand to want to speak to those, those types of people? So I dreamed up this event series, wrote it out. Uh, January 2012, I had the inspiration. I literally just sat down for a couple of weeks and just took my time to write a business plan out. Once I thought that it was in a, a decent form to share, I then brought people in that were smarter than me. And, and the concept was essentially, let's connect people, 50 to 75 people. We'll find common interests with them and we'll make these analog connections by having a concierge connector walk up to 
uh, to Billy and then introduce Billy to Samantha and say, you two need to, to work together or meet because you guys both went to the same university. Uh, you're a brand manager. You're an agency lead. It really um, took away the tension and allowed for very high level connections to be made because it was such a curated experience. But we would have that data of who these people wanted to meet and what they wanted to hear. So we did that analog, meaning without any technology, from 2012 to about 2013, like late uh, 2014. And uh, Mike and I, yeah, bootstrapped the, the whole initiative um, from the ground up. And it was the first event that we did in July 2012. And uh, it was during probably like the two hours before we opened doors. I said to myself, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to quit my job tomorrow and just went for it without having literally any money to do it. Like it was just looking back, it was pretty foolish with the amount of responsibility I had, but it ended up working out. But yeah, so we started as this event series and then um, we figured, well, shit, what if we can make an application that makes these connections for us? And then really harness the power of that data. So we did. We we invested um, a tiny fortune into that development, and we then invested another tiny fortune in taking our event series from Chicago and did it um, in Las Vegas. In order for a movement to move, you have to move. The beginning of 2014, we developed the technology for the connection system, and that's what we call it. And the connection system acts as an invitation, so we could send. Um, unique links to the individuals that we want to participate in our event series. They then answer a few very quick questions that have like psychographic, demographic, and industry-specific um, details to them. And then our matchmaking system makes connections for people. So as, as someone comes into the room and, and registers, the algorithm is then notified, oh, there's another potential connection here, right? So it just keeps populating and populating. While also while that's happening, on the back end live, our concierge staff is able to walk around the room, make these introductions, and then real-time update the iPad or uh, the, the back end on their iPad that, um, you know, Sydney actually really wants to meet um, Sarah. And so it'll update it, and then they'll get a radio call, and we'll make these connections. So the, the brands and partners that buy our event series will then use that information to help curate a very good conversation. So there's all the, the, the BS of a sales pitch or a presentation is directly crafted based on what that audience wants to hear. So that's how we started. Uh, well, I love that concept so much because that's something that I would love to use for my future event to connect music professionals, which will come down the line. As we were doing these events, uh, people were coming up to us asking us, Hey, you just introduced me to these amazing brand managers or these, you know, really great creatives or these artists. Do you guys do that as a service? And we're like, yeah, sure. Not with that intention originally. The intention was always to be this event series. But, but then it just naturally occurred to us that like, all right, we're doing all these things as, as a team. Why not just make it an agency? Since then, you, like you said, you transitioned into more of the brand experience side of things. Right. I've come across you guys and your clients at numerous festivals. You know, you were at South by Southwest, Art, Basel, Mambi, Dirty Birds, Reawakening, Lollapalooza, pretty much all the ones in the Midwest and across the nation and even internationally. Um, what do you do at festivals like these? Yeah, great question. So uh, we do two things primarily. 
Uh, one is the role of acting on behalf of the festival as their partnership and sponsorship uh, agency of record, where we will develop a, a holistic sponsorship program for them. And then we will go out and activate that program. So for example, it's not just about, you know, dialing for dollars and getting simple sponsorships. It's really about being creative and integrating interesting things that enhance the festival uh, consumer, number one. Um, number two, enhance the festival itself and then provide tremendous ROI to the, to the brand. And with that, there's a lot of interesting learnings because we understand the production that goes into a festival, the timelines, the resources, and we know how to bridge that gap, be able to speak to the festival production team and operations team. The second way we work at festivals is on behalf of the brand. So brands will come to us and, and say, we want to engage uh, festivals for a, a multi-festival nationwide tour. And then we'll go out and negotiate it from uh, start to finish. We'll negotiate the festival rights fees. What's the, the partnership going to look like? Um, we'll interface with the production team, the dev operators and whomever else and, and fully produce and execute that um, to a way that's scalable across uh, the nation and doing like 40 festivals or so. So those are the two ways that we uh, operate in festival space. And you've done that nationwide tour with Monaco, right? Yeah, we've done um, a few uh, tours with them throughout uh, the last couple of years. They're, they're a great brand. Um, they truly have some amazing innovation. And the, this last year was a pretty big festival season for them as well. And they've been seeing some tremendous growth. But it's, it's awesome to be able to work with brands like that that are innovative and understand that the festival space is like an interesting place to be in. Because if you look at it in a couple of different ways, if it's just a sampling opportunity, there, there's no other gatherings that you could sample at scale like that. There's just so much opportunity in that space and so much influence inherent from the, the styles of music or the food or whatever it may be. Yeah, I agree. And that was actually going to be one of my questions. <laughs> so you beat me to it. I agree. I think Monaco is such an innovative brand. And I think it's so great that they're interested to and that they acknowledge the value in music and also music festivals. To be honest, I wouldn't have known about Monaco if I didn't try it at Mambi a couple of years back. I remember you guys had your silent disco activation. That's such a good one. <laughs> it really was. And also, like, I'm an avid silent discoer. Like... <laughs> And I think they are getting bigger and more innovative every year. I mean, this year is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But what would you say is the importance of festivals and brands having these brand partnerships? You know, it's weird answering that now because of our current state. It, it is an essential uh, partnership and it can provide a lot of value. And, and at the end of the day, it can provide a tremendous amount of value to the people that go to the festivals. And I think that's the most important thing. And, and we've been fortunate to work with festivals and entities that put a lot of that partnership uh, funding back into the festival, into the experience. How have these brand experience transformed over the years? Yeah. So, okay, I'll, I'll explain this. So when EDM was really getting crazy, let's say like 2010 to I'll even say 2015. So that, that five-year chunk the brands that were entering the space, like the big ones, were purely doing it for the marketing. The, the ROI wasn't really too focused on the actual sales at those large-scale events. So they were spending ridiculous amounts of money. And it's interesting because I believe, in part, 
that's that's what drove up um, a lot of electronic music artists' uh, demand uh, was how much money the brands were paying to the promoters. So there was just like a whole snowball effect. Really, it was really interesting. State Farm always comes to mind whenever I like think of these like really intense experiences. They're not only associating it with their cause, which is neighborhood of good. It's just investing in the emotion that these music bands have in such a great environment. Yeah. One thing that I want to get your thoughts on return on emotion is the new ROI. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I full heartedly believe in that. And I think it's really important, um, especially now, like getting, getting return on emotion. People want to feel differently and are, and are struggling on how to do that. So I think if a brand could help you, feel better in some regard. And that could be something super simple. That could be like 25 cents off something, whatever it may be. However, it could enhance that. I think that's important because you're going to have a strong emotional connection to when there was a struggle. And brands that aren't doing anything right now um, and just playing it safe, I don't know, because there's some data that's like, they don't need to. There's some data that's like, no, they need to. But I think what you're asking is more important. What is the, the emotional ROI? Were you there emotionally for me as a brand? That sounds kind of weird, but it's probably it's pretty true though. You know what I mean? That's a really interesting perspective. Yeah, and it's something that I think that people will think of, and so it makes them invest more into the brand at the end of the day. And I think also by associating with all these different like pivots, you know, live streams and all that good stuff, it adds to that return on emotion. Other than the return on emotion, like you kept throwing out the term ROI, which is return on investment. How do you measure that for brands? Fortunately or unfortunately, most of the, the, the festival uh, partners that we've worked with for this pertaining to this question have been directly tied to sales at the, uh, the bars, so liquor and beer brands. And you can't, you can't fake numbers. It's, it's, the proof is in the pudding. So think about this. On the festival side, you may be selling four or five different categories that pertain to alcohol. So you need to be able to do that as a, at a festival and understand your consumer. Number one, like when and will they drink and how do you, how do you manage that? Because then you have to base your orders on that, right? So the order that the festival places um, is extremely important because they need to calculate those numbers. So the Bev operator just has to make a leap of faith in understanding what could work and what couldn't work. And this was really interesting with Monaco because when Monaco was first coming up, they really, no one really knew of them, but every time they'd be there, they would just sell out because of the marketing tactics and, and how we position different things. As a festival promoter, you have all those different things to, to manage. And then as a uh, partnership, you're, you're like, okay, we need, we need to sell all that we can, right? And then you layer in the experiential tactics. What will help drive more product? So we started to look at things that were very fundamental but very important to the festival goer as well as to the promoter. So for example, um, Man Beyond the Beach, we did a, 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 for a couple of years, a really amazing activation for Beam Centauri. So Jim Beam, uh, first year was Jim Beam Apple, where we said to them, what if we build you your own VIP deck right near the main stage on the beach with the best view of the city, but it's open to anyone that's 21 plus. And then we say that to the festival, what if we, what if we're able to give you a brand new VIP deck or a brand new viewing deck, right? And so it, it adds benefit and ended up being an amazing win because we also realized when you have a good view and you're comfortable, 
you're going to want to plant your ass there for, for a long time. And you're going to want to enjoy the music and you're going to buy lots of drinks because you're going to be there. So we had tremendous dwell time. And, and, and in some cases, we're able to back that up with uh, reports from cell phone towers. So like through festival security, we're able to hone in and see which IP addresses we're able to dwell the longest. So we're able to back up a lot of this data. So using those techniques, we then feel confident by saying, no, no, here are the historics. But the tactics to get the data are, are rooted in the experience. What does some, what does a consumer want to do? How to predict uh, behavior in an ethical way and, and how to engage them so you're providing mutual value. Wow. Yes, that is a great way to look at it. And even g- getting like further into the nitty gritty, would love to know more about that like process and workflow. What other factors you take into account to create something like that? What I really learned when I was on tour, you have to, as a tour manager, quickly create a rhythm for the tour. You know, just like the, the, the ocean and the tides, there, there's always a rhythm to it. If you don't have that rhythm, the crew won't do, be able to do what they need to do. You know, the, the artists won't be able to perform. So you need to, you need to create that rhythm right out of the gate and take away as much chaos as possible. And that happens by being in my, for, for me, being emotionally, um, in, in tuned and understanding the different needs of people, you know, in a close proximity work environment on a tour bus or private planes, whoever it may be. Like imagine having like a new room, like having 50 to a hundred roommates that you see every day and work with every day. Like that's basically what it's like. It could be really gnarly. So you establish that rhythm, but that comes from understanding people's uh, vibes and just paying attention. So like walking into a room, we as project, we, we all naturally have done that, like everyone that works for us. And, and what we do is we inject that into the experiences where it's like, okay, how does someone actually want to feel during this? What, what kind of experience you want to have the consumer walk away with? And, and the easiest way to do that is just by, I think not overthinking it. A lot of people try to get super creative when it comes to just activations in general and creativity is awesome, but you could be over creative, you know, like sometimes someone just wants to sit there and and drink your beer and listen to music. They don't want to fill out a form and do this and do that and get a bracelet and, you know, jump around and take a picture and upload it. Like, so, so you have to be very cognizant of that and, and respect that. What's your process then with coming up with a concept like that? Their main goal they're telling us is what they want to do, uh, sampling, brand awareness, and uh, engagements. And then the fourth one would be sales. That would be the dream one. How can we actually get sales out of this? So for us, the process is pretty, it's, 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 a, it's pretty different each time, but it follows these three building blocks. One, listening and just taking it, taking it all in. And then we start to talk about it. What ifs? How abouts? Could this work? From there, one of us will then create an outline of a storyboard or a deck, like just bucket ideas. And then from there, we'll collaboratively work on it to basically massage it into a concept that we could really put some uh, meat and bone, you know, meat on it. And then from there, um, the, the actual tech tactics of it would be okay. We need to create a couple different renderings of this experience. So we, we determine that we see a creative uh, solution that at festivals, there's not a lot of dwelling places for people to eat food. Now, we want to bring the brand in and the brand is going to provide that, that necessity. So then what could we do that will allow what the client wanted, which was sampling? All right, well, we could create these interactive experiences where they walk in, 
they're just able to relax for a little bit, get a sample, and then if they want, they could go buy a full version of that product at these different locations. Because again, as I say, the consumer's intention is very valuable and you have to honor that. It really is. So out of everything that you've done, what activation or experience that you created was the most challenging yet rewarding? There's different variations of them, but uh, one which is very simple was what we did with OKCupid um, a couple years ago for Pitchfork. They're like, look, we're not really sure about experiential and how this is all going to work, but we have a partnership with Pitchfork and we need to do some really cool activation there. Help us come up with something. Oh, and by the way, we only have a uh, 10 by 12 footprint at Pitchfork and we really don't have the largest budget, but we trust you guys want to do something. And this was a true flex of like how creative could help you with the with the production. Meaning if the idea is super creative, you may not need a lot of production to pull it off. It could be very simple. So their concept was uh, at the time, this is before the rebrand, they, um, I think it was like a series of like, uh, I have nevers or have you ever types of questions. So you'd come to our activation, you would take a, uh, a photograph, you, you would stand in front of this really cool backdrop and get your photo taken. And it would be given to you digitally, but also as a Polaroid. You get two Polaroids. And then you would answer the question on the bottom of your Polaroid. So there was probably like 15 questions around our small tent and then outside of these giant murals. And people would go up and answer the question. And then other people would answer the question. So by the end of the day, these giant cork boards were filled with the beautiful mosaic of people's faces, but the intention was to make connections, to show the connectivity of love and romance through their app. So the other part of this was, um, I could never live without, and then someone put like peanut butter, and then they would see your name on the ball, on, on, on the wall and be like, oh, wow, that, that girl is super cute. Like, I would love to meet her. And then you could put your picture next to them, and then you could come back and visit it. So like there was these little micro connections happening. And um, it ended up being extremely successful activation. There was a ton of press around it and it was just super simple. That one actually is really close to heart because I actually met my significant other on OkCupid. Oh, you did? No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Honestly, it's when it was still a desktop or a website and not an app. <laughs> That's great. We met like six and a half years ago on it. So well, we're definitely, yeah, thank you. I love, I love sharing that story now. I mean, yeah. back in the day when it, it wasn't as acceptable, we used to tell people that we met at a nail salon, his <laughs> idea, <laughs> you know, that's just great to show that you can bring it live in person. And it's just the same thing. It's about creating connection, whether online or offline. Right. Exactly. And so for like people who are looking to get into the experiential side of the industry, what are three things you would suggest for them to focus on? I know that's very broad, but, um, you know, one thing that I've learned when I first started was the permitting side of things. You know, that's something that I've always tried to get done immediately that I didn't realize until I was in that side of the industry? I think having a really good understanding of what you like and what you see out there as, as marketing to you that you find um, interesting. Like, oh, that's pretty freaking cool. Like, because when you, when you understand what you like, you're able to, I think, articulate that. Like when you really understand 
what you like in anything, you're able to articulate that because you believe in it. I think another thing is to spend some time in the dirt and get um, beat up a little bit out there. Take positions that you think will be extremely challenging because um, if you if you're able to do it and do it well and learn from it, you'll be that much more of a of a sought after employee. Um, it's always been my point of view, which is why I had the career that I've had. I've done a lot of different things and some of it was really awful and, you know, just kicked me down. But now I could say when someone comes to me with a, a, an issue that works for us or, or for me, I have a perspective of empathy because I've been there before. Um, I think the third thing would be um, figuring out how you actually want to feel with your career and, and the experiential industry, the live, you know, touring concerts, you could get stuck in the same place if you don't constantly remind yourself where you want to be. You know, you could just, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you want. But if you want growth, you should really be uh, defining consistently how you want to feel and where you want to go. And, and um, that's probably been the number one key to my success, uh, the, the little success I've had over the last couple of years. I love all of those. And the third point that you made, that's my mantra for 2020. I think a lot of people, if they put a little bit of thought into like where they want to go and why, the why part is the most important part. So being proactive and not reactive, that's like what I'm trying to really install in my life. You know, you've been mentioning the the touring and the tour management side of your past. Who did you tour with and how did that happen? Let's see here. It actually all starts back in high school where one day I hear this band Oasis playing. And I'm like, what the hell is that? That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, just just fell in love with the fact that they could just rock a stadium. And so I got more into it and then realized like, oh, as I started getting older in high school, like, oh, there's, there's people that work for these bands and do all this and they don't have to be musically talented because I'm not musically talented at all. Fell in love with it, went to school in Las Vegas for entertainment management. And while I was there, I started to get really involved with the uh, student council programming board. It, it just afforded me a lot, but there was always one passion that I had, which was I wanted to go on tour with a rock band. And, and experience what it's like to be a part of the machine that is able to rock a crowd like that. So um, I was booking concerts for the, the student uh, body. I was a senior in college. I just got back from China. The position that I had um, won, because you have to get elected into it, was the director of uh, entertainment for UNLV Student Council. And they they paid me a salary, they paid me a stipend, which was like ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> and they paid for my tuition and they paid for my books. I basically like, I basically won a full ride scholarship for one year. So it was like the dream scenario. While I was doing that, that year, I was also working full time down in Fremont Street, Las Vegas. And um, a friend of mine, my, my good friend, Jeff, uh, was the designer for all of our student body concert posters. So he would design all these posters because he was an artist. He was really good. He was a really good creative. As the entertainment director for the students, I would get phone calls from all the different venues asking if students wanted extra credit or, you know, internships, whatever. So I'd have job boards on, on the outside of our office wall. And one of those was the Mandalay Bay asking um, if we had students that wanted to be interns and 
junior producers for the Tony Hawk Boom Boom Huck Jam. Right. So this is this was a big like skateboarding festival, and it was being produced by this guy named Bill Silva. Bill Silva is a, a legend. Um, did all does all the programming for the Hollywood Bowl. Used to Margaret uh, used to manage Margaret Choi, Blink One Eighty Two, and uh, another artist. And that artist happened to be someone that was about to launch their career. My friend Jeff, who was going down to Coachella, car broke down, ended up driving back to Las Vegas, went to the Tony Hawk uh, Boom Boom Huck Jam as an intern, ended up meeting Bill Silva. And within a couple of hours, Bill Silva's like, kid, you're incredible. You know, quit what you're doing when you're ready, work, work for me. And so Jeff decided to, to go work for him right then and there and moved to the Hollywood Hills and started working with his management team. And then a year later, Jeff called me up. He's like, I know you always want to go on tour. There's this new singer songwriter that's about to, uh, to launch his career. Do you want to give up your job and give up your awesome room and your awesome new place with your awesome new roommates, like a year out of college and make no money at all and drive this shitty van around the country and, uh, almost die every night because you're so exhausted. I'm like, yeah, where do I sign up? I'm like, well, who's the artist? He's like, it's Jason Mraz. So then um, I ended up touring with Jason Mraz for a couple months with Jeff, and that started my touring career. Wow. Jason Mraz. I definitely remember <laughs> listening to Jason Mraz growing up. Honestly, it's so funny. Jason Mraz gives me like random memories. How did you make that career pivot from touring? I did that tour for a couple months and then came back to Las Vegas. And then um, I got another opportunity to start produce uh, fashion shows um, on the Las Vegas Strip for this company called Triumph Entertainment. And they were turning this center into an entertainment complex that had uh, built-in fashion runways so that large brands could do their product launches. It was pretty aggressive. They had these massive LED video screens that were on these, uh, these rolling tracks, like all this new innovation and technology. But during that time, I'm like, you know what? can't do this. Like I want to tour. Like that's what I've always wanted to do. So I have to do something in order to make that happen. And so the only way to make that happen is if I just do it myself. So I uh, created a company called Event Joe, made a website. Um, this is even before like socials were socials, got business cards, got a tax ID, the, the whole enchilada. And I just was like, okay, I'm going to try to get as many opportunities as I can in the touring space. And I'm going to launch this business and need full-time employment. So lo and behold, some 41 was going out on tour with unwritten law. And so I left full-time employment, just realized, all right, because I, I, at the time I bought a house, I had a house in Las Vegas. I'm like, all I need to do is cover this mortgage and these bills and I'm good. Everything else is, you know, whatever I can do. And just took a, took a chance and um, it ended up being the most insane first mega like tour management experience, like being the actual tour manager of my life. That, that launched, and then after that, I started working with, uh, with Z Trip and I started working with, um, uh, brands, and that's when it really started to, to click for me. And then that led to some, some really great touring experiences, you know, Kings of Leon, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, Spoon, Bravery, uh, Phoenix, um, Mix Master Mike, uh, U2, uh, Coldplay, Black Eyed Peas, Re really, had a, a great run at that for, for several years. But during that time, as I was saying, I realized that there, there's power and connectivity. When at the beginning of like my touring career, I realized that obviously there's, there's prestige and excitement for being able to bring someone backstage. Right. So I, I looked at that as 
how could I leverage this for new business? So as I was touring around the world, I would hone in on different people that I knew or was loosely connected to. Maybe they worked for a brand or they worked for this. And I would just be like, hey, you two is coming to Barcelona in, in a week. Would you like to be my guest and hang out in VIP? Not a lot of people will say no to that, right? So then I would meet them. I'd give them a, a tour and make them feel like a million bucks. And next thing you know, they'd be like, let's stay in touch. And then a year or two later, they would become a client or even now they're, they're clients of ours just, just by using that sort of technique. So I really saw that power. And then I saw the power in uh, how people meet that pivot ultimately led me to being able to start project. If we can get one thing out of this whole conversation that there is a power in connection, yeah. like you've made a career on it. You've built your business based on it. You've con you've continued to build relationships. That's the first time I actually met you in person was through your proprietary event called Sector 7, yep. which honestly is one of my favorite events that I've been able to attend to this day because of the intimate experience that I got from it. It's where you guys bring seven people together and each person shares their experience or stories in seven minutes. And at the end of it, we all kind of find out there's some sort of commonality amongst all of us um, that really solidifies that connection even deeper. So you put so much thought into it. And that's like, honestly, what I felt leaving. I, I geek out a lot um, thinking about how many uh, times we've done Sector 7 and like how many people have connected. It's really cool. Who would you say is the most influential person that you have met that helps set you up for success? Ooh, uh, that's an easy one. It, it's my mom and my dad. My, my, my dad, he's just a very good businessman. Um, and it was really made crystal clear to me the type of guy he was. Uh, he's an architect. He's been an architect on his own for over 30 years. And, and it was last year in June, we were at a family party and, uh, one of his good friends came up to me and we were just chit chatting. And I said to him, I'm like, you know what's interesting? My dad has never really ever succumbed to other people's anger or negativity. He's like, well, that's because your dad's too smart for that. He outsmarts them by not even let them get, by not letting them even get him mad. Like to be so centered and to be so confident and just love, like loving that you don't need to worry about anyone else's bullshit trying to, to, to hurt you. It's true. It's just such a like, gangster move. Like that's just so cool. So learning that over the years has been very uh, helpful for me. That's awesome. And I think that like leans into the emotional intelligence of it as well. Like being so self-aware that you don't have to go down to someone's level and let them get to you. Yeah. So, wow. And also that's really cool that your dad's an architect and then now you're a relationship, relationship architect. architect. <laughs> I know. My, my, I took my dad out to a Blackhawks game a couple of years ago during uh, the Christmas break. And we were in my office. And I'm like, hey, check out this video. He's like, relationship architect. He's like, you're not an architect. I'm like, that's not what it means, dad. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. With the state that we're in right now, you know, it's no secret that this pandemic has shaken up the world, every industry, everyone of all different backgrounds. And we don't really know like when it's really going to end or, you know, how the industry is going to be afterward. Mm -hmm. So how have you pivoted your company in this time? 
people that just don't know the information are going to be very scared naturally because they're not sure what to be afraid of. So we said at the beginning, like, let's learn as much as we can about all of this shit like that we're, we're experiencing. What are trends? What are reports? Who could we listen to? Who could we call? So from, from the very early stages, we started to, um, gather all this information into a microsite that we have so that we could share it with different uh, clients specifically for different trends to watch and getting a really good educated point of view. Um, that way, when we speak with our clients or we speak to people, we're actually speaking from very detailed research and conversations. And that's been one way that we've pivoting because now we're providing that value to our clientele by giving them, you know, points of views and strategies and then working with some of those clients on strategies. Wow. Yes, that is a great way to look at it. How can the listeners find you? Yeah, so our website um, is probably one of the best places our social handles. The website is pro-jectject.is and then uh, on Instagram at pro underscore jekt and the number one. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to see you. Well, thank you so much and good luck with everything, okay? Joe is the founder of Project, an award-winning experiential agency. In our episode, we learned how Joe went from tour management to entrepreneurship. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Setup Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review the Setup on Apple Podcasts. And I encourage you to share this episode with your friends and colleagues. If you have any topic recommendations or questions, please visit us at www.thesetupseries.com.